Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe is an investment platform focused on the biotech industry. I'm really excited today to be joined by Christian Ungermeyer, an investor in tech and biotech, as well as the founder of the Pyron Investment Group. We're going to be talking today about really exciting, cutting-edge spaces in the biotech industry like longevity and psychedelics, the broader macro markets, as well as the future of how patients and humans are going to be interacting with medicines. Christian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Super excited. Thank you. Maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you could just give us a quick intro on yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today. Oh, that's a long question. I tried to make it short. 45 now. I had my very first company when I was 14, if you can call it a full company. It was like tutoring because I just figured out, first of all, I loved high school, which is rare. And I was very good in it. And then I also realized that I'm good in explaining things. That's why I like to be in podcasts and talk about stuff. So I turned that into my first business, tutoring other children. Then I figured out, which was my First big revelation in being an entrepreneur is what does a brand name mean? Because I was able to hire other pupils to teach on my behalf and I got a cut on the money they made. So I built it up to 10 people till I graduated from high school when I was 18, 19. So that was my first entrepreneurial experience. But the real one then was when I was 19, turning 20. I, I had two tutors. I actually didn't study science. I studied economics, but uh, I had two biotech tutors because I had a scholarship for that. And Mr. Limmer and Professor Kreutzer, so all credits to them. And literally the first session we had, I was actually doing what you do with your podcast. I was like, ah, let's not start in the basics of biotech. Tell me what is happening in 20 years from now. What are you excited about? What are you working on? And they did describe me what is now called RNAi technology. It didn't even have a full name. And, and I always have to admit this very important. Don't ask me any details question because I didn't fully understand because I was 19, but I had a feeling they were on something big. And then we started talking about starting a company together. We did it then, which was called Rebo Pharma, which then became very successful very quickly because it was then within a year or two, it was very clear that they had made not just a genius discovery, but also had all the patterns and everything. When ultimately we merged in a spec, so specs are older than people, youngsters in our industry think. So we merged in a spec, which was called Alnylam, but in this case, kept the name of the spec. So that's how I had my first, so to say, exit, which was 2004. And from there on, I did quit university before, so never finished it. And since then, I would say I'm an entrepreneur by heart, and we still start companies when we have an original idea, which we especially had in psychedelics and in longevity and some new stuff we're working on right now. But then we have a pretty big investment firm with two and a half billion under management, both my own capital, majority and outside capital, investing in tech and biotech. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's only recently have we seen folks have both capabilities or both disciplines under the same roof. And it seems like you've really pioneered that domain. Are there any specific trends or commonalities between the tech industry versus the biotech industry? Or do you feel like they're fairly disparate and different kind of endeavors? At the very end, you could always say you need great entrepreneurs. However, in biotech, even I would say the last three years, four years, I have to say maybe the tech 
part of who came into biotech was a little bit overestimating. In tech, you can really make something work. Or I would say in tech, to a certain degree, entrepreneurship has a little bit more weight or even more weight on it. The entrepreneur is always very important. But like in science, if the science doesn't work, you can't change it. No matter how excited you are, no matter how hard you work, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So that is, I think, what some pure tech investors who ventured into biotech are learning at the moment that, again, the usual can-do attitude, which has merits. And I would say that the mixture would be the best. Like I think the biotech industry became too bureaucratic. And unfortunately, I also have to say, if not negative things, but two things where the two sectors can learn from each other, I would say the tech industry has almost, especially when it comes to biotech or tech mindset, too much of this can-do attitude. Because again, the tech side has to learn at the end, it's the science. But at the same time, I see sometimes great science, so where the science does work, being ruined or at least not brought to what it could be because there is a lack of entrepreneurship in biotech. And the positive case would be if you keep the science first, let's say, attitude of science first mantra, because that's what it's all about. But if you take over from the tech world, that sort of entrepreneurship matters as well. And hey, it's all about how you build a company, how you finance companies, whatever. So I think both sides can learn a lot from each other. And hopefully we're learning the right things. That's a really great takeaway because I think the tech world did have a fair bit of hubris when coming into biotech. And I think to your point, you are starting to learn what drug development really means and how you really create value. I also feel like maybe we missed an opportunity where those salient points of entrepreneurship and facets of new thinking and creativity and supporting the next generation may not have infused quite as much in the biotech space and we maybe optimize for different types of dogma than what we could have benefited from in the biotech world. That said, I feel like there's obviously a lot of really interesting domains that have grown in popularity and have made measurable scientific advances over the past decade or so, perhaps through a combination of those two worlds coming together. Some of the areas that you've actually been very excited about and very vocal about for a measurable period of time, like psychedelics, longevity, et cetera, would love to hear maybe to start out some of the specific scientific or therapeutic or biological areas that are most exciting for you and some of the key bets you've made through Apiron and elsewhere over the past few years. Well, psychedelics, I think, are a good example for how, let's say, tech world or the tech thinking can positively infuse the biotech world. Because I think we can all agree that the science of psychedelics is undisputed. I think that we are now, but we actually were already 10 years ago. So when I had the idea, because of my first personal trip on mushrooms, of bringing psychedelics back, this was not a genius idea, by the way, because these medications had been, again, medically used in the 50s and 60s. And by the way, every single scientist I talked to said, yeah, of course, we know that stuff works, like that, that, but no, it's not going to happen ever again. Like it's not the paradigm the FDA wants. This is not what investors want. So there were a lot of blockers in the heads of people or walls, imaginary walls at the end, if you look back, but like why nobody did it. So again, our contribution to the sort of renaissance of psychedelics, again, was not 
re-finding the science, because it was always there, it was to say, but hey, wait a moment, why not? And that's more the tech attitude to say, no, I give a shit literally what people think. By the way, people told me it's going to ruin your career. You can't say that. And I was like, first of all, I'm the only person who can ruin my career. I have enough for the rest of my life. And I think I believe in nothing more than in the power of psychedelics, what they gave to me in my life and, and to friends. And I was like, look, I'm just going to do it. And then suddenly, because of the dedication, the money we put in, whatever, we started changing the few on it. And then it's always very interesting to watch, like suddenly, like till 2019, it was really hard. We couldn't almost raise outside money. Biotech, by the way, was not interested, all biotech investors. Again, not because they doubted the science. They're still doubting it, by the way. Partly, if you look at the share prices, we can come to that. But then there was a lot of, oh, can I do it with other people's money? Is this device clause in my fund? I was like, no, we're doing medical records. Anyway, so they are the sort of really, I think, the tech few on things or the tech attitude, Silicon Valley attitude helped a lot because it was coupled actually with really solid science. And then suddenly 2019, 2020, everything changed. And now it becomes, or it became, I think, a totally accepted fact. Everybody's like, now you can't do actually a dinner with not even biotech people or whatever with anybody and psychedelics will be a topic. I'm just very proud. I can talk about it. I was just contacted by a TV show who talks about psychedelics, like a fictional one. I want to have my cameo. So it's really becoming a pop culture thing, which I'm very proud that it's based on the work we're doing. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. One of the things that you mentioned that caught my ear was that there was a mental block in the industry amongst the elite, if you will, in the biotech world around advancing these drugs. Because you had mentioned they were used historically as treatments, right? The efficacy was well understood and well agreed upon. How many of those sort of scenarios where that kind of dogma exists do you think holds back drug development? How much do you think that impacts our thinking, our approach, or where we prioritize, et cetera? Good question. It's hard to quantify, but I think it's a lot. There was one, hopefully I get the numbers right. There was a, a friend who's one of the encrypted, we you call them OGs, original gangsters in the biotech industry. So he's one of the very traditional biotech VCs. He's now in his 70s. And he actually told me some weeks ago that he was actually shocked to read a number. And I hopefully I get the numbers right, that something in 1995, the top 10 best drugs by revenues were used by 40 million people. And then like 2019 or whatever, I think it was 7 million people or something, but a rapid sort of decline, which says nothing else than the biotech industry got more and more focused on niche diseases to repeat it all over again, because that's partly like what they learned to do. And I think we leave, first of all, financially billions of dollars on the table, but also we leave some of the more interesting questions of life, if I want to phrase it like very heavily, out of the equation, if we're just focusing on more and more narrower diseases. Like the other big thing is what I really love, because for me, that also 
is really like related or belongs together is longevity, which again, not just us, but like the people in the sector were ridiculed almost from the, let's say, traditional biotech world, because they were like, oh, aging is not a disease, da da da. And, but I was always like, let's start there. It really sucks. This is already a, a mental wall that humans, not the biotech industry, all humans since 10,000s of years, because we see aging happening to everybody, we actually even created stories around it to comfort ourselves. Oh, this is the only true equalizer, blah, blah, blah. We all have to die, blah, blah, blah. So we build up multiple, it's very the strongest wall of all is the sort of belief or the the dogma we have given ourselves that aging is, what is the English term, inevitable. Aging is, again, it's the terrible equalizer. Yeah, so all of that. And it's maybe not. And by the way, and if not, like I'd rather fail trying to do something. And we're going to learn so much about us, about life, about biology and everything by trying to cure what we call aging. And then just going back in time, like I'm very proud, came a guy, Professor Manuel Serrano, who then indeed helped a lot by saying, hey, aging is not a single disease. That was maybe the mistake we all did before. The very few, because I was always looking at aging since Ribofama. And by the way, purely for the fact that I hate to age, like I think it's really bad. Like there's nothing good into it. And then people tell you this bullshit. It's like, oh my God, it makes you wiser. And I was like, yeah, great. I want to be wiser and I still want to be hot as 20 and get late as 20. We should be open to talk about all of that. And then came Manuel and he had this paper where he defined these nine hallmarks of aging later on, 12 hallmarks of aging, which then suddenly became very scientific. And then the first sort of biotech guys even looked at it. I saw that although we had a great scientist with Manuel pioneering the definition of aging and opening up pathways for, let's say, finding cures, not about aging as one disease, but about these 12 hallmarks of aging, you saw how this mental blockade kept being there and it's just gradually lifted, so to say. And it's a shame because time is ticking. I think along those lines, one thing I've seen, at least here in Boston, is that there's also a bit of a demographic shift, right, in that regard, where folks who are younger, especially those who are currently in school studying biology, seem to be more open to these sort of concepts of aging biology and interested in it than perhaps some of their older peers who might have been in the industry for a long period of time. Have you noticed the same? Yeah. I think, again, you need a fresh view. By the way, there was maybe the grandfathers of biotech who were very innovative. I'm wondering why nobody thought about it and I'm trying to tell the story a little bit dampened down because I think it's actually been, I want to go into a very controversial discussion, but like one anecdote I heard is there is this famous Dr. Jensen. There is still Jensen, the pharma company. Yeah. And if you go on these guys' Wikipedia, he invented one drug after the other, which were used by millions of people. Like I think he has like several drugs which are in his essential drug list, whatever. And so the question is how, by the way, why could like 40, 50 years ago, a person like him do one blockbuster drug after the other, which by the way, saved hundreds of millions of people lives. And what are we doing now? Like, what are we spending money on? And then I talked, I found one person who worked for him, who's now in his 70s, yeah, but who was his assistant. And again, I don't want to go into the details of some controversial stuff, but let's say that way, what this guy told me is they had a very relaxed view on safety at the beginning. They were taking stuff themselves. They were like, hey, let's give it to 
very sick people without any regulation. So I hear now where people mentally say, oh my God, what is he saying? If I look like he saved hundreds of millions of people, and I think it's a fair question to say, have we over the last 30 years become too risk averse? Yes, safety is important. Clinical trials are very important, rigorous sort of proof stuff. However, where is that we forgot to talk about the trade-off if a life-saving drug takes five more years to be approved, how many people die in the meantime? What are these effects? And I think there is a better balance to be found between safety, time to market, and cost than where we now. And we're not challenging that enough. And that is, again, coming back to the, our initial thing, what Silicon Valley is really doing well, challenging paradigms. And then, by the way, sometimes the answer can be, no, it's actually good as it is. I'm not saying challenging paradigms always means getting rid of them. Challenging paradigms just means that once in a while, we should ask ourselves, is this really efficient what we're doing? Are we doing the right stuff? Are we looking for the right stuff? And so on. And then, by the way, if you then come to the conclusion, yes, actually it is, then you can be very happy or can be very relaxed, but maybe some things yeah. should be better. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head because I think compared to maybe when Dr. Jansen was practicing medicine to now, we've had new technology, we have new understanding of biology, et cetera, right? And those things should be considered when we look at our approval pathways. I think what you commented on in terms of the curiosity at a high level as to why we're so slow and so expensive in developing medicines today is definitely one that I feel personally as a rare disease dad, because should we really be taking the same development path as we do for cardiovascular disease, as we do for a disease that affects 100 children, for example? And should the same time, same burden be placed when in that period of time, many can die? So it poses really important philosophical questions, I think, for us as patients and as a country, for sure. Yeah, and we should, by the way, also like, and that's, I think, where the world is going a bit, we should put more power to the consumer in this case, mm. because people are not as dumb as somehow regulators make them. Mm -hmm. So I'm also, by the way, that's maybe another example. And we're big investors as well in crypto. And crypto is obviously the ultra libertarian mindset. And like the cynical guy would say, if you look at the last 18 months in crypto, there have been a lot of blowups. And the most spectacular ones were a hedge fund called Three Arrows, then a stablecoin called Luna collapsed. And then the biggest one of all was obviously FTX and Bankman Street. So that's the negative view. But the positive view is on crypto, nobody really complained. You have never seen, like when the banking crisis happened, let's call it the uh, bad guys were sitting in the banks and were risking our economy. First of all, they were regulated and still it happened. Second, everybody was crying for the government and said, oh, we need to be bailed out. And it cost a lot to the taxpayer to bail out the fraudulent actions of some regulated market participant. In crypto, nobody called for government. Nobody. The crypto industry said, look, there were some bad things happening. We're going to sort it out ourselves. Nobody's crying. Also, because it's decentralized, there was no systematic effect. If you think about it, Luna, Three Arrows, and FTX would be like Lehman, Bear Stearns, and JP Morgan going bankrupt. The banking system would have collapsed. Crypto, yes, went down, but now is maybe more resilient than ever. Bitcoin is coming back. So the lesson to be learned is that I think humans in general, by the way, are smarter 
then most governments and regulators make them. So let them take more educated decisions themselves. Like we should put back more power, let's call it to the consumer. And then my favorite, maybe a little bit controversial topic, but I'm very happy about it that it's happening, is the whole trans movement. Because Mm -hmm. suddenly the zeitgeist is changing in the favor of what I just said. Because now suddenly we say, oh, if a man believes he's a woman, wants to become a woman for whatever reason, first of all, who is it of other people to judge that reasoning? So we put a lot of sort of agency to that person. And then we even say, if this person truly wants to, he is allowed, if it's a man going to a woman, to, to use drugs, partly, by the way, very harsh medical drugs, to transform which I think is a good thing because we put agency on people. And I think that zeitgeist is transpiring into other parts of biotech or in generally better into other parts of of life, of society, but also into biotech. Because if we treat humans the same way in other topics, then we should give them more agency as well for other interventional stuff or let's say enhancement stuff in general. Absolutely. I'm curious when you think about Ozempic as an interesting example, it seems to have illustrated a change in how the everyday citizen interacts with and thinks about medicine. What do you see as that future? What do you think that's going to look like in say 10, 20, 30 years? First of all, I love Ozempic. I'm on Ozempic and it's great. And by the way, it's exactly what I just said. If you take Ozempic, hopefully to my knowledge, but I think in the US, it's approved to a clinically obese people. So it's not a weight loss drug per se. It's not what it's approved for. So hopefully I'm not looking clinically obese, but it helps me because I can focus my discipline on something else. It's a great enhancement drug. And so I don't know the numbers, but I guess that the vast majority of revenues in Ozempic is off-label use where sort of ordinary people or not clinically obese people use it for weight management. And it's fine because it's my decision and it's great because it gives a useful tool to whoever wants to use it. And I think Ozempic might be looking back in 10 years because at the end, let's talk about societal change, whatever, but money talks. And Novo Nordisk added more than, I don't know the exact number, it was definitely more than 100 billion of market cap. And I can tell you every pharma CEO I'm talking to is starting to change their mindset on enhancing drugs or enhancement mm-hmm. drugs. Yeah. Because suddenly, holy shit, like that's a real business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Made by the vast majority of label use. And by the way, that is my very big, what I say since the beginning of our journey in psychedelics, which is my core belief, which I know is not shared. And we're going to prove all of these people wrong by many biotech investors who look at that way too narrowly is I believe, give it five to 10 years from now, the vast majority of people will do a psychedelic trip with a therapist in a clinical setting once a year, because who defines who is happy and not? It should be every single person. And then if I ask you, if I ask myself, if I ask anybody here in my office, are you truly deeply happy? Every person struggles. Every person go because that's part of the human existence that we struggle with ourselves, that we struggle with the world. And psychedelics help us. I don't need to be depressive to then intervene. Why not doing it once a year? By the way, as most religions have prescribed it over the last 10,000 of years, as an enhancement, a spiritual 
and happiness enhancement. So practically where Ozempic meets psychedelics is that if I look at what is the one thing every single human being wants to be, 100% of the world population, you want to be happy. It's always my fun thing at a dinner, start asking people, I have that question from a dear friend who's amazing, who's a big fan of psychedelics, Deepak Chopra. So he has, in one of his books, he describes that he's like, when you go into a dinner, start asking people, what do you want in life? And then you get very different answers, but then ask the question, why do you want that? And then you already get more meaningful answers. But let's say that one person says, I want a dog, I want a family, I want a house, I want a car, whatever. And then you just go on why. And if you just poke people more and say, but why do you want that? Why do you want that? At the very end, 100% of the world population will give you the same answer if you say why long enough. It's going to be the last sentence will always be because I want to be happy. That's the true, it's meaning it's in the US constitution and we have medications who can help people achieve that. So 100% of the people should do it in my point of view and will do it. Yeah. Well, it's really insightful. Uh, your commentary on Ozempic and kind of its off-label use reminds me a little bit about Viagra when it was first launched as well. Obviously prescribed in certain circumstances, but now obviously used in a lot more extensive social circumstances. When you think about the different areas that you've invested in that you see as therapeutic areas or classes of medicines that will drive happiness, you've touched upon psychedelics, you've touched upon weight loss, you've touched upon longevity. Any other areas strike you as overlooked or respectively kind of aligned with that thesis? I think if you build it up, I think longevity has several subcategories. Because by the way, we see now with Ozempic that interestingly, it's not just helping you with weight loss, but it has a true longevity dimension as well by reducing cardiovascular risk and so ever. Why? Because obviously being obese or even being slightly overweight with inflammation, whatever, is not good for you and many other reasons. So by the way, so these all things, what I'm saying is interlinked. I think we also should stop ridiculing people for vanity because I think we live in a world, again, which we already said, but like where we started defining, oh, you have to be severely sick to be taken serious and just want to be happy that's not serious, want to be looking better that's not serious stuff. And I was like, first of all, again, let's take a little bit of a learning from the trans movement. Nobody else should tell me what is serious for me than myself. But also things are more interlinked. People who are happy live considerably longer because being happy has a very positive effect on many other things in your body. Again, being not overweight has very positive effect. So I think like under the longevity umbrella, we're going to see many sort of new versions of Ozempic or new ideas. I think the very next one is going to be muscle improvement. First of all, because that can be a little bit the downside with Ozempic that you lose muscle mass. Yeah, so it's already practically should be a good combi therapy of Ozempic with muscle enhancing or muscle preserving drugs. But then again, some people want to be more aesthetic than others. So why not develop stuff there? So the muscle thing, and by the way, that's already happening both in my two private companies, Rejuveron and Cambrian. We have very interesting drug candidates, which really boost the body's ability and which are not anabolic steroids to put up more muscles. But then in the sort of in the chronology or in the timeline. So we started with weight loss. I think muscle and body composition going to be the next big thing. Then happiness, again, true happiness, not just treatment of depression. is going to be the next one. Then a big one will be where we may be five, seven years away and we have some drug candidates in some of our neuroscience companies 
is why shouldn't we be smarter? Happiness is the one thing that's the feeling, but like, I would love to be 10, 20, 30, 40% smarter. So the true, I don't know if you remember the, the movie Limitless, mm -hmm. so true limitless drugs, which just make us more intelligent. So that's going to come maybe five, seven years from now. Again, we have some candidates which we're testing for, let's say, more approved or more acknowledged stuff like depression or Alzheimer's, whatever, but where we can clearly say, look, people are going to take that for neuro sort of nootropic stuff. And then let's say 10 years plus out from now, what is one of my other favorite portfolio companies, we have a program called BlackRock Neurotech, not to be mistakenly taken by BlackRock, the asset manager. I actually want to change the name. But like, it's called BlackRock Neurotech at the moment. And we are by far the most advanced brain-computer interface company. So while Elon Musk, who I think is one of the most amazing people out there, however, at this point, I'm very proud that we're further ahead because he will go into humans with his BCI company during next year. And BlackRock has more than 40, 40 people with a chip in the people's brain since more than partly seven years. So they are so advanced. And these people with chips in their brain can do things which we would colloquially call magic or mm -hmm. sci-fi. Who are these people? These are severely disabled people, either quadriplegic people or people with ALS. So these are the two diseases we focus on. Obviously, the chip is in the first instance there to help these people with the disease they're fighting. But once they have a chip in their brain, and by the way, these people are empowered by that. I give you an example. We have this quadriplegic person, and I can say it because he was just on stage with me and told his story. So he was a fully able person, had a horrible accident, quadriplegic, was depressive, wanted to kill himself because it's not alive. He discovered BlackRock, got a chip in his brain. And with this chip in his brain, he can command things around him. He can tell a robot to feed him. He can drive a car with his thoughts. We're going to release that video in January. So either we have released it when a podcast comes out or will come soon with Ford together. He can do things which you would think is Star Trek sci-fi in 20 years. And not just does it help him very tangibly in his life, but it also gives him a new purpose because he's like, hey, I'm the first cyborg. Like I'm pushing the frontiers of what human can do. So he became really self-empowered in a much broader sense than just being able to command things around him. And I think that is then the ultimate frontier, merging our body with both a computer and maybe robotics parts, which then will truly make a jump in human development. Wow, that's amazing. So if I heard you correctly, it sounds like body composition as sort of a near-term kind of opportunity, happiness, intellect, and then eventually device-human integration. Merging with devices, which I give you a more concrete example Please. than it sounded now, is cochlear implants. I'm very amazed because I never dealt with cochlear implants in my career. So I was just played recordings of how people with a cochlear implant here. If you would have asked me two weeks ago, I would have said, clearly technology must be that good that with a cochlear implant, you hear again 100%. No, it's shit. It's really bad. And this is what we did the last 30 years. But the problem is because not just the microphones got really good, but then how you put the signal then into the ear, you still have to use the same cochlear parts and whatever. So it's practically not really a leapfrog forward. Comes our brain-computer interface where we can send now the noise signal in that case directly to the brain and have practically 100% hopefully 
perfection. Yeah. So that's okay. one thing. But now, wait a moment, we were like, why stop at 100%? So if somebody has that, why can't I give him super hearing? Why can't this person say, oh, I hear something 500 meter away. I can tell my ear now with an app on my phone to zoom in or whatever, or ideally in the future, I can wire my thoughts. And so there we're coming there in a fascinating new world where I think even the people who are in the industry because of these mental walls we just talked, I'm very optimistic. I think we're underestimating how truly fascinating science capabilities will be the next 20 years. Oh, I know before you've recently also announced some interesting new endeavors in the athletics domain that also I think allows us to sort of explore the potential for therapeutics more broadly. Love to learn a little bit more about that. That's the beauty of having a broad portfolio which goes beyond medical drug development. Actually, we have five pillars in Apiron. We have the biotech, the truly drug development with this focus on mental health and neuroscience and then on longevity. Then we have what I already mentioned, crypto. Then we have future tech, which is a little bit of catch-all, space tech, AI, which again, our AI investment help a lot to help coach our biotech companies for AI drug development. And then we have a pillar like sports entertainment, because one of my big beliefs is that over the next 20 years, because of AI and robotics, we more or less will eliminate the need for physical labor. People will work, but because they want to work, because it's a passion, not because they have to. I also believe that at the same time, the efficiency gains at companies are so big and financial gains that they will be able or maybe forced, so to say, by government to share these profits with people so that I believe actually people will work way less in terms of times but at the same time have the same purchasing power than they have today. Because of that belief, we think a lot, how will people spend their times? We own a hotel brand. We have owned the largest life entertainment business. We produce movies. So we think a lot about the broad, narrow concerts, but also broad, like leisure, how are people entertained and whatsoever. And sports is obviously a big factor because again, more time, but it's going beyond that. It's even not just time. It's also like meaning, belonging, like almost you could say sports are a little bit like religions. They give people yeah, comfort. It's a cultural. Yeah. And then we had the idea to combine that. And we also think a lot about which are new sports, new leagues, new themes we can really invent. And one of the most archaic and in many ways, bad organization are the Olympics. Meaning I love it as a sports, but hey, we're living in a TikTok time and having something every four years doesn't fit the consumer. Then at the same time, which is very sad because I have some friends who are Olympic athletes, the Olympics as an organization make a lot of money. They do not share with their athletes, which is a disgrace. One fun fact, which I, is not a one sad fact, not a fun fact, one sad fact is that the average Olympian gold medal winner in his or her prime days makes like 30, 40,000 a year. It's a disgrace that we treat these people that way because nobody shares with them. So for many reasons, I was always thinking, how can we develop, let's call it the new Olympics? Why don't we combine that with what we just said? So we started enhanced games, which is in many ways, a new format, but most important, performance enhancement drugs. I don't want to call them doping because it has the negative side provision. Performance enhancing drugs 
are not just allowed, but endorsed. It's wow. going to be the biggest science experiment ever. We're going to measure all these athletes. By the way, it's fairer because there was a great study by Harvard that almost 50% of Olympian athletes dope anyway. So it's very unfair if somebody wins, you don't know. Did he, why not talk about it? Again, be open with stuff. But also when you do it in the shadows, you might do not good stuff. So we're going to pay for a full examination before every contest so that we know or people know they have to do it the proper way. They have to tell us everything, but they can because like it's all very positive. I think that's going to be fascinating and A, be fun to watch because it's going to truly show us what the human body can do with the right supports. And at the same time, we're going to learn a lot for drug development, longevity, vanity, whatsoever. Yeah, that's amazing. Really excited to see first set of games, first set of contests. But maybe to wrap here, I'd love to maybe hear your commentary on the broader market and where we're at today. Obviously, the rapid rise in interest rates has certainly constrained access to capital for some of the pillars that you had alluded to earlier as focus areas for a Pyron. What do you portend and what for the future, macro, geopolitically? But then second, also, what tactical advice would you give to a founder who's starting a biotech company today and how they should be thinking about capitalizing and building their companies? Well, let's start with the letter one. I think especially when you are already in the business, I'm really harsh with that because I tell it to every of our founders in every sector, make sure you have as much runway as you can. And I said it already two years ago, cut, 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 because it's going to go away, by the way. The good news is every market moves in cycle. That's like my fourth crisis, I think, in biotech. It's the most severe one, but it's not the first one. So things change. If they're very good, they become a little bit worse. And if they're very bad, like they're going to become better. That's 100% a given. Nobody can tell you exactly when. So optimize, I will tell every founder, every CEO, optimize to be still alive when the market changes. The market will change, but make sure that you are not that. It sounds simple. And unfortunately, by the way, this is what I have been very frustrated with a lot of portfolio companies, like in biotech especially, they didn't get the memo. They lived through an, a time where money was abundant. There were some great investors like RA Capital who pushed very early for that as well. But we need as an industry, as investors, biotech needs to become more capital efficient. And CEOs not fully got the memo. I think they will get it when some of their peers or themselves, they die. And there will be more just running out of money. And then, by the way, as an investor, you look at companies and you want to support the prudent ones. So I'd rather give more runway to the company who saved any, who saved money and did the best they can than save the failing company where I look at their spendings and like clearly you didn't understand that the market has changed because that's for me is clearly a sign that the CEO is not capable of what they're doing. But really simple and hard advice at the same time, cut, again, and we are late in the cycle, so it could be too late if you didn't cut before, but make sure you're still alive. The market will change though. So my coming to the macro picture, I think 2024 will be significantly better than 2022 and 23 because biotech was the first industry to consolidate next to, by the way, Bitcoin or crypto has already partly recovered because there are some other macro factors which help Bitcoin. But like for me, Bitcoin was the last six months, the canary in the coal mine for a positive version of it. And I think biotech will follow. I think interest rates will gradually come down. So the industry will relax in 2024. So that's the very high level view. 
Another thing which is happening, which is very good. So why did biotech stocks go down so much? I think it's not just, I mean, yes. So interest rates, biotech is a, per definition, an industry which is very sensitive to interest rates. There was a second and a third problem. So interest rates were one, but then we came out of the best time in biotech. So we started very high, then interest rates came and still, yes, the biotech stocks should have come down, but not that much as they did. But then the pressure on the system, which is a far more niche system than the tech system still, if you look how many really specialized biotech hedge funds there are, whatever, it's way, way less than you have, I don't know, broadly tech hedge funds or tech mutual funds or whatever. So practically the pressure on the industry was too much. And then you saw all the problems of a collapsing ecosystem, like funds being closed, redemptions, illiquid stocks, whatever, which sort of made a correction, which was justified much worse, which is by the way, turn around what we're doing at the moment. We started heavily investing in listed stocks because you get them for free. You get many high quality stocks, by the way, including my psychedelics company at high with trading below cash. It doesn't make any sense. And it's not because people don't believe in a tie, hopefully, but I, again, just agree that the science is there. And it's just like market inefficiencies. And again, I had that in many industries several times. Hindsight, this is where you make most of the money. Yeah. You touched on a really interesting point around the juxtaposition of the size of the capital markets in tech versus biotech and the niche perception of the latter. It's interesting because I think over the past decade that I've at least been in tech, there's been a lot better first principles understanding of the value of a technology company, which I think brings new capital to the space. I'm curious, what's preventing a similar amount of capital coming into the biotech space? Because as you talked about earlier, there's a huge opportunity. There's massive amounts of market and lots of unmet medical need. What's preventing more capital coming into the biotech space in your opinion? I think it's several things. The one which comes to my mind is, as we said before, it's always about science at the end. And it's not as easy to explain to, let's say, a broad auditorium than a consumer product. So now you could say as the opposite is, okay, SpaceX is not listed, but let's use it for a second. Rockets are also very complicated. And somehow Elon Musk is making it simple or simplified. And I think the biotech industry has a little bit of, I don't know if the right word is a chip on their shoulder, or it's still a little bit, there was an arrogance, but like biotech people also like to talk to biotech people and see it almost as a little bit like make it a broader accessible. Because if you want to make it broader accessible, you need to somehow simplify yet still stay true. And that's an art. And I think the tech industry, and especially let's call it the heavy tech industry, not consumer tech, again, they have it easy, but like the heavy tech industry has maybe understood better that you need or a broad investor community, including retail is very healthy or the other way around. We have seen in biotech now for two years that being too niche. And I think to a certain extent, it's maybe a little bit self-decided that the biotech industry is niche that this is not healthy. And I think maybe in the next sort of boom, we can all together, again, make science a little bit more accessible to, let's call it the masses, because it's, A, I think they are interested in it. Again, I believe a lot in agency, people want to learn about stuff, but like also it helps us, the industry participants, because it will unlock more capital. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Do you see any intersections between biotech and crypto? There is this whole idea like, 
I haven't seen fully working stuff, but somewhere there will be some is decentralized science, including like a fair remuneration of contribution. So if you look at how drugs are developed, like it's not that everybody who contributes to science, which will then ultimately be turned into a drug, gets their fair share. Because of, I don't think because anybody wants it to be like that, but just because of the limitations of patent laws, how companies work, where does something become a product or patent, da, da, da. And I think there may be blockchain-based, I say blockchain-based surveillance or recording of who really contributed to what might help that we come to a little bit of a fairer distribution of sort of money made, which then would actually spark hopefully more early stage science, because that would be sort of a new funding arm for early stage science. So that is, I think, one of the things where crypto and biotech could work together. Yeah, wonderful. I think there's huge opportunity to bring more capital into this space, as well as enable some of these really interesting trends that you highlighted earlier. Maybe to close this out, any final thoughts or parting words of wisdom for the audience of budding entrepreneurs and drug developers? I think we touched on a lot of that stuff. Like Again, I think bring back a little bit more entrepreneurial thinking into biotech and think about if you're a young entrepreneur who wants to go into biotech, don't let yourself limit to say, oh, I need to find a niche severe disease I'm going to solve. Like Maybe rather think exactly the opposite. What are medical improvements every single human being could profit from? Because like you make the most money if you serve as many people as you can. Great wisdom. I think everyone should take to heart is helping as many people as possible in the work that we do. So Christian, I want to thank you again for being on the podcast today and sharing your many exciting points of view. Would love to have you again on as uh, some of those unfold. So thank you. Thank you. It was very great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.